Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the BFI. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, what have you discovered about film, the world, yourself over the past 10 years? Film is the only constant in my life. Okay. The other thing is that the film industry is 100% not a meritocracy. Cheery start for Christmas. I know, yeah. These are my end of decade (laughs) resolutions. Just accepting and acknowledging the fact that... (laughs) Life is always unfair. (laughs) And the film industry is particularly unfair. (laughs) Well, I asked because this episode, our last of the year and of this series of The Bigger Picture, we're going to celebrate the end of the decade that no one has a good name for by talking about the giant changes seen by film and screen culture throughout the 2010s, the teen tens? The tweens? The tweens. The noughties? The noughties. Teens. I like it. So we're going to talk about the Nortines using a number of themes that we've come up with. We must stress this is not a list. And why is that, Anna? Lists are bad. Our list is not a list. It is just a collection of stuff that it's we've noticed over the last 10 years. Top of that non-list. In no particular <laughs> no order. No particular order. What's going on here? Let's face it. This is not the worst thing you've caught me doing. There's been speculation that I'm parading around as a superhero. I'm just not the the hero type, clearly. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people. So when we needed them, they could fight the battles that we never could. Gentlemen, what are you prepared to do? Let's kick off with a trend, an inescapable trend we're calling Rise of the Nerds. What do you mean when you say Rise of the Nerds? So uh, I think it was accepted that over the last 10 years, a generation of people, mostly people who like comic books and superheroes, came into power. A lot of the major studios, a lot of deals were done, particularly Disney and Marvel, whereby we got this production line of superhero films that you might have noticed have been in the cinemas quite a lot of late. I mean, as someone who's been 
religiously watching every single superhero film and particularly Marvel films since they started getting good in 2008, namely with the release of Iron Man, the first one. It's been a fascinating phenomenon to watch. And there's two sides of it. On the one hand, there's the content, aka the films, the TV shows and the endless screen content that we're given that are extensions or adaptations or reimaginings of comic book narratives. And in themselves create a comic book-like web of characters, interactions, universes, dimensions and layers and timelines, which create a whole nother relationship with an audience where you can both experience a film or a TV show by and in of, of itself. And at the same time, you have the opportunity to engage with a much wider and much more complex universe. And then on the other hand, you have all of the what I'm kind of quite flippantly called the nerd industry, which has been birthed basically by the arrival and the mainstream success of this content on on this side. And I'm obviously not generating very good audio <laughs> content because I'm signaling with my hands. One hand and the other. Yeah. <laughs> the point being that there is now a quite powerful subsection of media, critics, reviewers, video essays, podcasts, influencers, who have essentially made it kind of their point of existence to cover and discuss, debate and dissect all of the comic book adaptations and content. And obviously Marvel leads the way with this, but there's also the DCU, namely the DC Comics uh, Cinematic Universe and any kind of franchising or attempts of other studios to create universes of their own. So you can talk about, you know, the Conjuring universe. You can talk about Universal's attempted Dark Universe franchise. So all of those subsections of journalists have kind of created a whole new media sector that's entirely designed to respond and support that other content. And they are now so incredibly powerful and influential. And in a way, they were the nerds who were writing yeah. and talking about the content and the films that mainstream, quote unquote, acceptable critics were not dating themselves to cover or were not interested in. It's like the audience and the critics validate the product and the product validates them back, right? And that's yeah. really interesting. And it's not really been seen in film culture in that way before, I'd argue. And what's particularly interesting for me, partly because I'm going to talk about myself for a minute, is that traditional film critics, i.e. your broadsheet media, struggle to know how to cover these films, I think. And I was somebody who was a film critic at a broadsheet newspaper during that time when these films started to come out. And in a couple of my reviews of them, I get a bit snooty and be, oh, just not another superhero film. But you quickly learn partly through a quite vicious backlash, but you quickly learned that people weren't going to take that from mainstream critics. They they needed this to be seen as an art form, and rightfully so, right? Like, the, the specific pieces of art that people need to be able to talk about as individual films, as well as part of a universe, and it's not enough to say it's just another superhero film. And I think, actually, better critics, if I'm honest, people like Peter Bradshaw at The Guardian, even when he was reviewing Iron Man in 2008, I think yeah. it was, he talked about it as an Iraq war film. So it's giving these films... Again, not elevating them, but giving them a real-world gravitas, which they almost certainly definitely have now, is swept across us, and I don't think critics are ready for that. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. This place, this love. We don't belong to them. Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Dreamer! Charlie Bird! 
Our next theme is how Netflix saved the mid-budget movie and quote-unquote killed cinema forever. You're frowning at me. I am frowning, but I'm also asking, did Netflix kill or save cinema? Bit of both, right? I think the killed cinema forever. It's first of all, it's in quotation marks on the script, which audio listeners can't hear or see. Um, so they could hear it in my tone. It needs a question mark at the end. So you've talked about this a lot, I think, during the series that we've had, but Netflix is fantastic now at mid-budget films, which nobody else is making. And if you look at the very recent slate, they finally reached the point where they seem to have achieved that status of being the producers of quality cinema content that they wanted to be all along, right? They started out their film production with slightly worthy good but slightly worthy films like beast of no nation which were you know refreshing on the scene at the time but weren't particularly great films and now we have perhaps one two maybe even three oscar contenders this year in the form of the irishman and marriage story which do feel like traditional cinema experiences but made and delivered through a streaming platform and i, mean, I don't know how that came about in a weird way it kind of like feels like netflix yesterday were doing house of cards and i was going to them to watch binge watch my favorite tv show and now i'm getting all the entertainment that i need on any medium from one streaming platform which i find slightly scary at the same time too that they have this dominance of the industry and if you look at the last 10 years in terms of how they've handled their relationships with various people it hasn't played out so well for them so things like the Cannes film festival had there was a big stink about them distributing there and then also having films on their platform when france has a very kind of traditional view of how you distribute films and there's supposed to be a kind of a stopgap between when films are premiered and when they appear on streaming services so it feels like the rest of the film industry has had to really catch up with Netflix because Netflix has the power and the money and that is a good and a bad thing and that it forces the film industry to modernise and think about what we're doing. At the same time, it means that Netflix has an awful lot of control over how things get made and also for me, curiously and interestingly, how they get marketed. So if you look at something like The King, which is David Michaud's new film starring Timothy Chalamet and Robert Pattinson, that's quite a kind of gritty, serious historical epic right but the way that netflix have marketed that particularly on youtube is by cutting out meme worthy clips of it and uh, of robert pattinson talking about timothy chalamet's balls and i find that kind of funny and interesting but i also think as the filmmaker how is it to have your film chipped and chopped like that and sliced and had tropes and memes made for it ahead of the audience taking it and doing that themselves i think there's about like diff three different points that you've just oh, yeah. made there <laughs> one of them is the fact that you've sort of ignored the really powerful thing that Netflix have. The real source of their power is the audience that they have and the fact that they're a global distribution company that essentially eliminates several barriers between screen content, be that film or television, and audiences, be that because A, they cannot geographically find a cinema that is playing those films that they want to see, be that prestige pictures are really weird shit that they also commission and produce and put on the platform or multilingual and international filmmaking as well, B, if they cannot monetarily afford to go to a cinema every week or satisfy their entertainment needs as much as they want. But with Netflix, it is possible. So there's a number of barriers that Netflix eliminates, but also even House of Cards famously was generated through a kind of not an algorithm, that would be too flippant and reductive to say, but essentially a combination of things that they saw audiences really liked on the service. Mm. And, you know, we'll talk about it later on, but that connection to audiences and the other thing is also the ability to give filmmakers and content creators creative freedom, mm -hmm. which is the lack of interference, which essentially 
comes, I think, stems from their knowledge of their own platform, knowledge of their own audience and how to make a particular piece of content reach as many people as possible with in essentially a click of a button, you know, that's incredibly reductive, but they can generate so much cultural conversation around a film that no one particular film distributor in any one territory, because that's how distributors operate, they divvy up the world into particular territories and then releases kind of can coincide of their temple releases like a Mike Marvel movie, or they will be staggered. So the conversation is kind of itemized depending on each country and when and the power and the reach and publicity campaigns of each particular regional distributor. Netflix has completely eliminated all of that because they live on the internet. And the fact that everybody is watching and talking about the Irishman and marriage story a bit less so about Atlantics and so on. Yeah. And everybody can actually see it. If they, if I read a review in Vulture, I can go and see the film that they're talking about you're, quite instantly. You're totally it right. It doesn't yeah, matter if I'm based in the US. Huge yeah. Thing. yeah, totally. And then the other thing that you're talking about, kind of the memification of film conversations, I think is a much wider point. And Netflix have really smartly seen how people have started talking about visual content and visual culture online, particularly on Twitter and Instagram, and have made it part of their marketing campaign. How flipping smart is that? Where they themselves can take bits of their content that they produce and know that that's how people relate to it and react to meme culture that moves and generates and regenerates itself so quickly online. And one of the most interesting campaigns that they did actually where they exploited kind of internet culture was with the rom Ali Wong rom-com Always Be My Maybe, mm. which featured a surprise cameo by Keanu both Reeves. of our favorites, Keanu. <sighs> and they rinsed that to its maximum. They didn't actually reveal that it was happening, but when the film launched online and everybody had seen it and everybody instantly started memeing that one particular scene with Keanu, they just wrote that. It was fantastic. And that conversation, live conversation and reaction to audiences' taste and the wider, I hesitate to call it film Twitter, but let's call it kind of film conversation online, is a complete game changer in how distributors and filmmakers relate to the content. These people aren't just rich, they're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> Summer's just going by way too fast. I wanted to see you before we both leave for school. Hey! I gotta go, but um, have a nice fourth, okay? Phoebe, there's something I need to tell you. You just went along and you did nothing! I didn't know what to do. I've never been through this before. Our next theme is the revival of the rom-com. Speaking of always be my maybe, Anna, what happened to the rom-com? Because it vanished and now it's back, back, back. It did vanish. It sort of was really big in the 90s and then in the early 2000s. And then it became essentially not a commercially viable genre anymore. It was just wasn't really connecting with audiences, wasn't really working. Is that because love died? Everyone started hating each other. Well, do the you world think, became a cooler, darker place. Do you think love died in 2010? I was much happier back then. <laughs> Again, what do these revived rom-coms look like? Um, no, I think what's interesting to note is actually that genres die and resurface every once in a while. It's quite a cyclical thing, mm. but it's been quite interesting, again, how rom-coms have been revived in the last maybe 
five years, if not less, and specifically how they've become more diverse and even more earnest. And again, our favorite streaming platform, Netflix, has played quite a big role in this because they have quite specifically and deliberately targeted YA rom-coms. And they've sort of become really in tune with the audience, but also really commercially successful and have become a really big part in the cultural narrative. So I'm thinking specifically of massive box office successes like Crazy Rich Asians Mm -hmm. or huge Netflix productions, to be honest, and not to kind of continue talking about them, but Set It Up, To All the Boys I've Ever Loved, Someone Great, Always Be My Maybe, The Last Summer, The Kissing Booth, all of these kind of became quite a continuous boom. So after they put out one and it became successful, very soon on they had another one. And there's a couple of elements there is that I think it's connecting with people because it's been a decade of quite a lot of political and emotional turmoil, not just in culture or in film culture, but in general. So the earnestness and the kind of universal storytelling basics of rom-coms, which is, you know, everybody falls in love. And also the increased diversity in these stories, the fact that there's a lot of interracial couples, the love that there's a lot of um, queer love as well that's being presented in mainstream, high budget and high end productions is, you know, not radical, It's responding to the times and it's responding to the needs of people to see themselves on screen experiencing life and love. So that has been kind of a a really big point of connection when people have sometimes struggled to see themselves on screen in other genres. And then there's interesting again, internet phenomenons that stem from rom-coms and kind of are really highly related to social media influencer marketing and the new star system and how stars are created. And people have dubbed it like the internet boyfriend phenomenon. And Mm. most notably, they come out of leading men of rom-coms. And I'm thinking of Noah Centineo in in All the Boys I've Ever Loved, our fave Keanu from Always Be My Maybe, although he's sort of the antagonist in that, uh, and Randall Park from Always Be My Maybe as well. And they're also sort of cyclical and really tied into the memification of these rom-coms. Timothy Chalamet in a rom-com coming up soon, I'm sure. Well, I mean, if you want to call call me by your name, a (laughs) rom-com. Not much. (laughs) I knew you shouldn't trust that woman. I didn't. I don't. I don't trust anyone. Then how could you not see this coming? Walker just nominated Carl. It's a long road to confirmation. Super secret spies living next door. They look like us. They speak better English than we do. They're not allowed to say a single word in Russian once they get here. When you make any noise, I will kill you. You you stay here? Damn, is you the landlord or something? Robin season. Everybody gotta eat. So why have you come to the session? Uh, It was a birthday present for my father. Is that a joke? No. It would be good not to make jokes in here, just in case anything gets lost in humorous translation. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Is that a joke? No. Next theme is television's actual golden age. You have some thoughts on this. Yeah, are... I'm getting on my high horse here because everyone Get calls... It. Thank you. Um, surprisingly uncomfy. Um, everyone calls the decade before this one the golden age of telly. So that's when we had Mad Men and The Sopranos and The Wire. I don't know. If you go back and watch those shows now, and this should happen, but they should feel aged, right? They shouldn't feel like classics forever. In the same way that classic films don't feel like completely pertinent and relevant all the time i mean the wire is still astonishing but something like the sopranos if to me feels quite slow paced and it feels like um there's often 
a development of the central character, so Tony Soprano, but there isn't much development of characters around them, or at least it's not done as carefully as a group, if you see what I mean. So the characters don't tend to evolve as a group. Soprano's fans are going to shout at me. I'm sorry about that. This decade, what we've had is a number of shows that have had a whole ensemble of characters that have evolved together and crucially the world of them has evolved as well but they've gone kind of unsung because there's been so much content out there so much uh, competition for attention that flashier shows have kind of stolen the the run on them a little bit so i'm thinking of shows like the americans which finished its run this decade um my favorite show ever of the last 10 years hot and catch fire and black sales and Black Sails, which you can like all you like. And The Leftovers, which again was like one of the greatest actors of this decade. Carrie Coon was in that film, uh, in that series. And it kind of went unsung until it had finished pretty much. And then people suddenly realised that these shows were amazing. Same as Black Sails. Okay. <laughs> but they... They were shows that grew as a whole. So it felt like the world evolved as a whole. And the characters, it wasn't dependent on just one straight white male protagonist for the most part. It was about a world of characters all developing together. I think other shows that got more attention, things like um, Atlanta, which I absolutely loved, and Fleabag, which I absolutely loved, they did that too, but there was a kind of sense that they were slightly on the older model, that the protagonist was key, that we could only really plug into one person. And it felt less of a network of characters and less of a world that was developing together. And these undersung second golden age, what's better than gold? Platinum age of TV is where Diamond my heart age? lies. Diamond age. Thank Good. you. Good, yeah. <laughs> but also, just to add on that, actually, one of the interesting things in the diamond age of television is the formal experimentation as well. Yeah. Just think of shows like Atlanta, which you mentioned, or the OA, or to a degree, even Fleabag. Or even David Lynch's Twin Peaks Oh my revival, God, yeah. Right? Twin like, Peaks The yeah. Return. Yeah. Right? They're so experimental mm-hmm. in their aesthetics. They're wild. They're unexpected. They feel more like art house festival favourites as opposed to mainstream high budget television. Totally. I think that goes back to a culture of TV that always was around. Like if you think of some of the play for today's in the 1970s, for example, they were weird and strange and clever and and did things that hadn't really been tried on telly before. But it was never kind of sucked into the mainstream in the same way as it is now. And again, it's about that accessibility thing that when we can all watch this stuff, even if it does fly under the radar a bit for my taste, I like, like Black to Sales. Be, like Black Sails. Basically, Black Sails you should watch. <laughs> Harvey Weinstein, Bob Weinstein, God bless them. My friends at Miramax for making this film, especially Harvey. And, um, Harvey, thank you for killing whoever you had to kill to get me up here today. Um, and to Harvey Weinstein, the, uh, the tough guy on the playground with the biggest heart. Thank you for saying you do anything for your friends, and you always do. Thank you. And then Harvey Weinstein. And Harvey Weinstein. Harvey and Bob Weinstein. He amassed a group of high-powered lawyers who were going to threaten us with a lawsuit if we went forward with our story. He hired a private investigative firm made up of former Israeli intelligence officials that were promised $300,000 if they put a stop to our investigation. And in the 11th hour, as we were preparing to publish, Harvey Weinstein basically barged into the New York Times himself, surrounded by some of his lawyers and folders with information that he was hoping to use to smear his accusers. Our next theme is hashtag me too. Anna, I think we're still struggling to quite understand what happened in the last decade in terms of Hollywood being turned on its head quite rightly um, and the kind of gradual destruction of the patriarchy, we hope. But how do you see the last 10 years? <sighs> God, 
I knew I was going to have to do this and now I have to explain <laughs> me too as the only girl <laughs> in the studio. Mm, okay. I think it should be mentioned the fact that Me Too is a campaign that started way before it became it came into the mainstream consciousness. And it only came into the mainstream consciousness when, quite frankly, white pretty actresses started coming out about their experiences of sexual harassment and abuse in the film industry in particular. And obviously there's quite a few names uh, of extremely powerful men, namely Harvey Weinstein, but then you can talk about extremely influential people in other tangential industries like Louis C.K., for instance, that have been brought down to one degree or another by the proven accusations of consistent and systematic abuse of power and sexual harassment that they've perpetrated against women, mostly. The biggest shift on an industrial level is the openness in conversation, Mm -hmm. is the fact that a lot of Hollywood and the film and the screen industries are built on secrecy and being part of a secret special club. And that's the whole point. It's like it's a very secret club that creates dreams for everyone else and is aspirational above everything else. And there's a long line of people who want to be a part of it, people who are privileged and people who are not privileged, who want to be a part in creating entertainment and telling stories and crafting the dreams of the next generations. It's everybody chasing, you know, the dream of creativity and immortality and the silver screen, you know, whatever form it takes now in this particular decade. But that comes with a lot of hidden uh, conversations and a lot of power dynamics that are not openly discussed. The ripple effect that you can certainly notice even in the last couple of years is that it is now not an entirely open conversation, but it's something that is in the air. And that's the thing that cannot be undone. You know, different organizations and different people and whatever will have their own problems. They will have to reconcile whatever mistakes or abuses of power they've perpetuated. There's people who are beyond any sort of salvation, Mm -hmm. like Weinstein. But then the thing that will, that I think is already being noticed and certainly will hopefully continue being noticed regardless of, you know, whatever changes are being made or people, are, whatever changes people are trying to make. There is no going back from the acknowledgement of certain abuses of power and seeing them. It's essentially people opening their eyes and actually talking about things openly. These are things that have existed since the creation of the motion picture industry. Mm. They have always been there. They just have been accepted and acknowledged as a necessary part of the function of the industry. But now people have just been going, actually, no, this is not necessary for us to exist and create good work. It's essentially acknowledging the big pink elephant in the room which is incredibly toxic, problematic and damaging on so many levels. But once you start talking about it, there's no way to say that it's not happening. Yeah. I don't want to bring out the marching bands and say that, you know, Hollywood is fixed. Hooray. Like there's no more exploitation. And I I think that exploitation is in Hollywood's DNA, quite frankly. And as soon as you have any industry that's based on beauty, that beauty becomes transactional, whether that's male or female, but it's largely female. What I do think is interesting in the last 10 years, particularly, is Hollywood loves showing itself. 
And I think that gradually we'll probably see more of a reckoning in terms of the stories we're told, right? That we'll have a new generation of actors. I'd probably include someone like Chalamet among them, uh, but people like Emma Watson or Emma Stone, Jennifer Lawrence a little bit. Like they, they're kind of the kind of, in a way, the kind of forefathers of that generation that are much more conscious of their position as actors and are able to speak softly politically about what they're going through. And they're still controlled by people. They're still abused by people, but there is at least slightly more of a platform for them to reveal what's going on. The problem you have is that top line actors are always going to make headlines when you have things like crew that are being abused or work practices that are racist or sexist or any of those things. That's less sexy and so gets less attention. And that really is where the industry itself has to start looking at itself even harder. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Saya pemenang. So I fell in love with someone who I would have died for. And that's like a real drug, isn't it? This is someone who is trying to disappear. We had no idea what kind of person we were getting. They look very different. He disappeared without a trace three years ago. Tonight, a San Antonio boy is back home. When a child is missing for years, either the child is dead or the child is not found. He was tortured. I mean, he had torture written off. This kid's really messed up. Our next theme is the boom in documentaries on big screens and small screens alike. What do you think that tells us about the decade of fake news? I don't know if you've noticed, but the truth is more slippery than ever. And that is the truth, by the way. But um, Well, I mean, you know, if the previous theme taught me anything is to not trust what middle-aged white men tell me is the truth. You can trust this middle-aged white man anyway. <laughs> the truth is less solid than it was. Um, that's mirrored in our culture through Trump, through the internet, through Facebook, through myriad things. But... What was interesting, particularly about this decade in documentary, was at the start of the decade, 
there was a theme of documentaries that basically told us that the truth wasn't true and led the audience on a merry goose chase. So I'm thinking about films like Searching for Sugarman, Exit Through the Gift Shop, Active Killing, uh, The Imposter. And these are all films that make a kind of dramatic point out of the truth being less than solid and tell the audience that they're lying to them, but at the same time never really quite reveal what the truth was. I think documentaries obviously did that before, but this was a kind of concerted movement to shun the idea of the truth as something that was golden and sacrosanct and shouldn't be meddled with in documentary. I found that really interesting and entertaining, but also in retrospect, seeing it now from where we're at politically and culturally, quite dangerous in its own way and that's partly because these documentaries were incredibly popular in the cinema particularly and this is the kind of decade where the audience is flooded to see these films and i can't help but think that's probably because playing with the truth in that way is entertaining and is fun and we all know that um and i do sound like a prude i don't know but it to, also all but... of those films that you mentioned tap into our own as audiences interest and consistent yeah. and recurring interest in watching liars and deceivers on screen you want to be part of the con essentially yeah, and you exactly. know you can even kind of relate that back to our own consistent obsession and interest in heist movies and con movies right it's because we want to see how the lie works mm -hmm. and you know aside from fiction and genre making films documentaries that sort of put at the center both formally in terms of how those films are structured and how they interact with ethics, reality, truth, and documentary filmmaking in its forms and its history as well. They show us both the ins and outs and the motivations and the methods of liars. I guess if you're going to umbrella them, I'd say that it's about this idea of expansiveness in documentaries, right? Like being expansive with the truth, but also on the other side, like going really big for the documentary that you're making. So another kind of couple of really popular and really huge documentaries were OJ made in America, which, you know, an eight-hour epic about the story of OJ Simpson and how that is an, uh, indicative of what's going on in America at every level in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of economy, all that stuff. And then another film that's very, very different, but similar in a way is They Shall Not Grow Old, which is the Peter Jackson film about World War One, where he restored World War One footage using the latest techniques and made it look like it was live footage we're watching now and added a new soundtrack so the soldiers could talk to each other. They're two very evocative subjects, but they're also films that are made in a way that is is huge for documentary filmmaking i'm not saying that every dot maker has that kind of budget now and can play in that space but i don't think documentary would have been considered in that way before this decade that the audience was there for these projects and they they could be assured that they would come out for them either watching it on streaming or in the theater in the case of the peter jackson film what's really interesting to me is that there are key documentary filmmakers that haven't really managed to catch the mood in the way that they did so the decade before this one, we had Michael Moore, and who still has the highest grossing doc of all time in Fahrenheit 9-11. Mm -hmm. But he hasn't really seemed to catch the zeitgeist this decade. And I, I think, I'm not sure that's because the quality of his films has dropped off. I still think he's as kind of passionate as angry and angry as he's ever been mm. and still wants to convey that with humour. He just hasn't managed to hit the moving target that is Trump and America today in a way that he did with George Bush. Do you have any idea... How many people who hate America want to live here? And do you know why? Why? Because it's a great country. I love America. I'm sure you do. Take full control of him now. Let thy will be done. Have your own way. Hallelujah. 
praising the name of the Lord. I tell you, thanks now while I commit him in your hands, Jesus. Hallelujah. And I beg of you to let thy will be done. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I am. Got my bodyguard now. Got my bodyguard. Our next theme is the new black aesthetic. Anna, what does that mean? I mean, let me just preface this by saying that I am in no way an authority to talk about the new black aesthetic. But I think it's very important to note just the rise and the success and ongoing palpable influence of a whole roster and generation of black creators, be that image makers, filmmakers, musicians, music video directors, and the intersection and relationship that between all of them. And, you know, we'd be remiss to not talk about one of the main visual moments of the decade, which was the release of Beyonce's Lemonade mm. visual album, right? Which very fascinating, kind of combined several creators, several directors, a whole roster of visual and cultural influences. And obviously, you know, I'm not African-American, so there will be things that I just will never get and they will never get. But... What was really interesting is that in this entire decade, there was this rise of just fascinating new images that spoke to an experience and sort of cultivated influences from Black culture, African-American culture, African diaspora, music, and other kind of filmmaking practices and film history. You know, notably, you know, it sounds like a very simplistic example, and perhaps it is, but Beyonce's Lemonade was instrumental in bringing back, bringing back to the forefront Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1992 because of how heavily it borrowed from, um, aesthetic-wise, from that film. And that film was incredible and very much of its time and a standalone sort of masterpiece, but it was sort of forgotten outside of small circles. You know, you have to talk about also, we were just talking about documentary, but then think about filmmakers like Khalid Ala with Black Mother or Vermel Ross with Hale uh, County this morning, this evening. Those are formally so distinctive and completely do not fit into your kind of take on post-truth documentaries and how they're breaking through and relating to our own uncertain uh, times. But they talk about something entirely different and the language that they're breaking down and remaking and finding a completely new narrative voice to talk about experiences that perhaps have not been allowed to be talked about or visualized on screen for multiple reasons that I'm not uh, an authority to talk about. But there was also, you know, activist and curatorial projects that saw that and 
cultivated it into something quite distinctive, like namely, obviously, the BFI and Galen's Gold No Direct Flight Project, which talked about the connection that had been established between African, North American uh, kind of filmmakers because of their relationship to the internet and mm. how they can connect and draw influence from one another and create works that didn't necessarily belong in one place or another, but they belong to this quite shared aesthetic that was being created. You know, you can see that as well a lot in music videos, most notably kind of Khalil Joseph, who was one of the directors of Beyonce Lemonade and has directed a lot of stuff for gallery spaces and for music videos as well. And Jen Kiro, who as well has, again, this seems to be a Beyonce theme, but she was one of the directors for Apeshit um, and then has also found enormous success with her films, especially Rebirth is Necessary, kind of on the festival circuit and in the gallery circuit. So there's an intersection between internet and music culture, visual and film culture, and gallery spaces as well, which seems to be a fascinating new thing that has really emerged and taken shape this decade. And partly because of the accessibility of all of this content through the internet and the fact that a lot of it has been released and made available online as opposed to in closed off spaces that are barriers for audiences around the globe and perhaps for black audiences around the world as well. Totally. I think that you're right that a distribution platform is key, but also it's the kind of audience feedback and knowing the audience and knowing the audience is there, which is obvious, right? If you think about it, even like 20, 30 years ago, we knew there was an audience for a much wider range of things than than Hollywood and other film industries tend to show us, but we just don't have the distribution platform for it, and now we do. And also that feeds an appetite, I hope, at big companies to make more stuff like that. And if you think of the biggest of them all, film we didn't talk about when we talked about nerd culture is Black Panther, yes. which is a fascinating superhero film, a brilliant story, but also essentially a story about black nationalism and about how black people feel in terms of colonialism, but all pushed through in these very popular topic and through a superhero story. And that film did extraordinarily well with Absolutely. black audiences, but also with a general audience, as it yeah. should, right? So audiences all kinds don't get those films until they're made and pushed out on a platform where people can actually see them across the board, regardless of race or gender. So look, I go do my research. Apparently a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how you not scared of this, man? Couldn't see no brother around here. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. Get out. Sorry, man. Get out! Yo! <laughs> Bros, we gotta go. Is everything okay? You can't get rid of the pepper dog. You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. will almost kill you, but you will not die from this. You were warned! I will rise, if only Tell me where she is! to hold you down. Our next theme is what some film critics and industry pundits have called very big air quotes here, elevator genre, referring to 
the horror films that have broken through into the mainstream in the last decade. What did you think about those? Is this finally your chance to talk about witches again? Uh, no. This is like classy horror films, right? And you're going to hate me for that. I, as I've said before, I'm not a horror fan. I don't know a lot about horror. But this is a decade where a non-horror fan like me finally switched on to the fact that horror is allegorical and horror is not really about blood and gore for the most part it's about how we feel deep down inside and films like the baba duke midsummer hereditary taught me that and so that's what i think i understand the frustration with elevated genre particularly for a, a genre fan who like loves their horror knows their history of it i can see why that's annoying but finally the rest of us dumb dumb switched on to what you guys were banging about banging on about all the time i don't think so much about dumb dumbs <laughs> but don't you think there was something quite revolutionary about a film like get out winning an academy award for best original screenplay yeah get out was like a kind of stark i mean it, it was it seems like it was a kind of outlier really right because like it's it's a film about race that is a horror that is a comedy that is it's not really you can't really peg it as any one thing and it's still a film that swims around in my brain because of that right like there's images in that film that are really hard to shake and i don't think you should be able to shake them because of the subject matter um but I don't, I'm not sure if Get Out was kind of representative of the rest of that genre of film, if you see what I mean, in that it felt like something that was standalone weird and scary. But that's an interesting point because it's the, it's the inability to classify it as, again, air quotes here, just horror, yeah. which A, denotes a sort of inherent snobbery in the film industry around genre filmmaking, a sort of this this is a sidebar. Just let the horror freaks watch all their blood and gores and make a lot of money off of it, but they're not really welcome to the mainstream table where we talk about cultural influence and give awards to things and make massive box office. Proper grown-up stuff. Proper grown-up film stuff, mm -hmm. right? But this decade has been interesting the term elevated genre and you know i hate it but at the same time i understand that it's come in a decade where horror has broken through into the mainstream and horror has broken through to the award system and into the much wider cultural conversation because it's really tapped into really general and widespread social anxieties using genre and also it's allowed a lot of filmmakers who were not necessarily expected to be making genre or were not necessarily following the rules or the tropes of the genre many of whom are not necessarily even horror fans themselves hereditary is a family tragedy get out is a social thriller mm. um the babadook is a film about motherhood anxiety you know the witch is a film about religious conservatism there are so many readings to it. Those films exist as really good stories, but they also function as quite fascinating and in many ways creatively or aesthetically or thematically subversive horror films and also then transcend that box that is sometimes put on genre films. So the fact that also the filmmakers behind those stories in this decade have been quite substantially uh, women or people of color has also been quite interesting because traditionally horror cinema has not been kind to people of color and has mm. not supposedly been kind to women, at least on screen. But now we're seeing this rise of what people are calling feminist horror and, you know, of people like Jordan Peele, who's a massive horror fan and had mainstream success and is now creating a, and enabling a whole other generation of horror filmmakers to make and continue doing work that also has a lot of meaning is responding to a lot of social issues 
but is also fundamentally really scary. So it functions on so many levels. And I think if we're not so much elevating genres as blowing the kind of walls between genres apart, we could probably consider Jordan Peele in that list of documentarians we were talking about earlier in terms of people who've captured the decade, right? Because you're right, he's a guy who's delivering fun horror stories that are scary, but he's also talking about social justice and race and liberal hypocrisy in Gale. He's talking about poverty and America's treatment of the lower classes in us. So there is an argument to say that actually horror film or any any type of film, but that type of director is now talking about the quote-unquote real world in, in ways that documentarians have traditionally done. Netflix now delivers unlimited TV episodes and movies instantly through Wii. This is Now TV. Get the latest shows you won't find on Freeview, plus catch-up, and box sets with the 4 99 Entertainment Month Pass. If, like me, you love the sound of your own voice, then you'll love the all-new Amazon Fire TV stick with Alexa voice remote. Our final theme to round off the decade of the 20-teens, the really big change is where are we actually watching movies and TV shows? Yeah, I'm watching them on my phone and Martin Scorsese is going to hate me for it. But that's where I'm watching my films. I might films throw my coke part. can at you. you. You're looking about, you're about to do some violence upon my person. But um, I'm a dad. I don't know if you remember that. And I go on about it. Enough. Oh my God, it's been an hour and you haven't it's mentioned been almost this. 10 minutes. And uh, <laughs> I don't have a lot of time. But it's kind of revelatory to me that I can now watch the latest Scorsese film in in bits. And he won't like that again. And I'm sorry, Mr. Scorsese, but like that's that's how I have time to consume my culture. The same with Marriage Story. I don't think either one of those experiences has been lessened for me because I didn't sit down and watch them in a solid block. Obviously, I'll never know. But I've still found things that are moving and strange and thrilling and have made me cry in Marriage Story particularly. And then The Irishman is a Scorsese film. So you get what? what you expect from that my point being that kids today are now watching around 50 percent of their media on a screen that isn't a telly and that's only going to increase right like the mobile nature of how we watch stuff is going to i think become a thing that interrupts everything that we watch and we're going to get much more used to watching film in segmented fashions or in ways that we're watching them across different screen sizes and a lot of directors particularly probably don't like that and I understand why they don't like that but I think that is something that the industry is going to, they are going to have to grow with and the industry is going to follow because people live their lives now in fundamentally different ways than they ever had. I'm not taking away from the value of the cinema going experience. I feel, still think it's a magical thing. I still think the kind of immersion you get in it and the group experience of watching something together, talking about a film after you've come out of a screening rather than staring at your phone is a beautiful thing and is to be encouraged. But at the same time, we are living in a world where people's attention spans are dwindling and there's much more competition for attention. And also you have this sense that a film can be interrupted and come back to. And I think we're too quick to label that as a terrible thing. It's actually interesting sometimes to pause, come back and watch another segment of a film or skip back on bits and watch scenes again, as we always could do with DVD players or video players, but now there's much more freedom for that. And even chop and change the type of films you're watching. So it's almost like you've got three or four good books on the go now rather than sitting and reading the whole thing all at once. No, I think you really hit the nail on the head there with the fact that it's an attention economy and it's also about accessibility. So it's not really about generations or kids, you know. You're a dad. I am. You are a dad. And That's you about watch... five minutes. That's yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> and you are, are watching these films on your phone just because that's when you can yeah. and in the way that you can. It doesn't mean it doesn't detract from your appreciation or cinematic experience in general. 
it doesn't detract from your experience in the film. And perhaps you can watch The Irishman. Let's just take that as an example, both on your TV, on Netflix, on your phone, on the go and in a cinema. And there will be different experiences of the film. They're just different. I don't think, you know, you could rank them and say that one thing is better or not. And I'm a big proponent personally of watching some things on the big screen. Mm -hmm. Part of it is especially if it's because of the uninterrupted experiences, because you're not going to be on your phone in a cinema. Hopefully. I think we keep coming back to it and it's probably something that's thread throughout everything that we've talked about today is the idea of accessibility, right? And the idea also of like audience choice, basically. And what that does is it removes the slight, and I emphasize slight haughtiness that film and cinema can have sometimes. And this idea of it being a prestige industry, when actually it's a medium of the people, right? And it should be for the people and it should be something that people can consume and enjoy in any which way they want. Ultimately, it's all storytelling. It was always supposed to be the most democratic of art forms. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and I think because of the division between the physical and digital worlds, somehow there is a kind of sect of people now who are, if you're not watching a film on film in a physical brick building surrounded by people in the dark, then you are not at the cinema going experience. I understand that point of view. I don't subscribe to it. I think that film is storytelling. Film is escapism. And the more accessible that opportunity can be to as many people as possible, the better it can be for all of us. That's it for this episode, this series, this year and this decade. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to The Bigger Picture this series and to those who got in touch with us on Twitter. If you haven't done that yet, you still can. I know it's a Christmas miracle. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna... I'm an Anna B. Demented. Our producer is Peter Sale. Over the course of this series, I've called Peter Winger, a boss, a ringmaster, a lonely wanderer in the woods and a brewer of homemade cleaning products. I've also implied that he's dead and some of those things are true. Something I know for sure is that Pete is an awesome producer. Check out more of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. Two guys wander around during my leave. <laughs> I can go. I love you too, Anna. <laughs> Happy holidays, one and all. Your last line this episode comes from the greatest film of the 10 teens, the 2011 Sean William Scott starring ice hockey comedy Goon. We're in this fucking thing. Now let's play like we're supposed to be here. And this whole episode was entirely designed so you I get to talk to get about to Goon. <laughs> Can we do a bonus episode to talk about this film? I've never seen it. So good. (laughs) Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.